Good morning. A story, uh, just one story, a story of what would be true of 362 people that we welcomed in this just past year. Um, very interesting to see now, too, that that group is one of the most unreached peoples of the world, and we have four of those congregations here locally that have birthed out of their arrival to this country, finding hope when there's hopelessness. But it's not just this story, it's not just our story locally, but on a bigger picture, this is the largest refugee crisis that our world has ever known. There are currently over 65 million people across the globe that have been displaced from their homes. And that rate is growing currently at 42,500 people per day. That means every minute of every day there are 20 new people that are being displaced from their homes. Primarily, you might think what's causing this, primarily what's causing it is 15 global conflicts that are displacing people these days. They fall really into three larger categories. Those who are internally displaced, maybe their community has been bombed out and now they're staying in their homeland in temporary dwellings. Or secondly, they've crossed an international border and they're now asylum seekers, which you saw much of what was happening in, in Europe, being asylum seekers, crossing those borders. And the third category would be refugees who have been through a vetting process and through a journey to be able to come to a third country, and that's a lot of our work. The United Nations path toward helping them is really the same as they're displaced. The first is if there's any way the United Nations can help them go back to their own country, that's the first choice. The second is once they've crossed that international border, could they help them have asylum within that country? And then the third and last option is could they go to a third country that would host them? Uh, when that third country of hosting becomes the choice, there are only 20 countries in the world that have offered to help. And each of them has their own vetting process, each of them has their own reasons for why they help. But each country's vetting starts, um, before it even starts, the UN begins its own vetting process. And the vetting process that the UN goes through can be 12 to 18 months, as you heard from Ben's story. So let me just help bring this to perspective when someone arrives here. Of the 22 and a half million people who qualify today as refugees, after that extreme vetting that happens with both the UN and the country they come to, currently one-tenth of one percent actually make it to a third country. 99.9% .9 do not. It is a miracle when they arrive on our shores. Let me just talk a little bit then on our shores, what it looks like for the United States to do resettlement. The number of people that are resettled here each year is determined by the President of the United States. The highest number that have ever been welcomed to this country happened under Pre President Ronald Reagan with over 200,000 people coming here. The lowest number is our current number under President Trump. U.S. vetting process takes about 18 to 36 months for people to come here um, in addition to a waiting list. And the waiting list is based on how credible the threat is of their livelihood. If someone is um, a refugee, they have to have credible threat that they could be killed if they do not stay. So if your threat is imminent, you go to the front of the line. If your threat is not imminent, you go to the back of the line. The current waiting list to come into this country from, for instance, the Philippines is 17 years on average. 
So you're looking at about a 20-year journey for them to come this way. If you're a Christian in the, middle, in the Middle East, you probably go to the front of the line, and you're one of the quickest to try to get into this country. So the U.S. reasons for doing this are humanitarian in nature. As I mentioned, every country has their own reasons. Ours is humanitarian, and that is we want to help those who are truly needy. And this really raises what I would say are some of the greatest misnomers that people have about refugees. The first is this. The majority of refugees that are resettled are men. That's actually false. 51% of the people that we receive are children to the U.S. that are refugees. And over half of the remaining ones are, are women. So the population that comes here as refugees are over 75% plus men and women that come to this country. The second misnomer is that sometimes we think of the U.S. doing the actual resettlement. Actually, there are nine private agencies that do resettlement for the U.S. government. And guess what? Most of those are Christian. Five of the nine are Christian organizations. World Relief is one of those five organizations doing refugee resettlement. The third misnomer that I would raise with you all is that most people think refugees are of other religions. Actually, the majority of the refugees that are resettled in the United States are Christian. 42% of all those that come to this country are Christians oftentimes persecuted for their faith as Christians because they're in a land where the majority of the population they come from are not Christian. What's the primary reason why a refugee comes to this country? Well, certainly it's not a bad place to live, right? Especially here in Hinsdale, nice area to live, nice homes to drive through. But just coming to this country is a dream come true. I picked up a refugee who had been from the Congo she had been living seven years in a tent with her four children waiting to come to this country. And she was so relieved when she got off the plane to, to enter here. The primary reason, though, that people come to this country is family reunification. They want to be reunited with their families, as you saw with Ben's story and his father and wife and child. They want to be back together with their families. And so over 70% of all those that we receive are being reunited with their families. The United States State Department then goes through this process. It basically meets each week with these nine resettlement agencies to a portion where these people will go. So those nine agencies are located, many of them right around the D.C. area. Our headquarters is in Baltimore. And they will meet weekly with the State Department to try to figure out where the people who have been vetted and processed can go um, to enter. And if the World Relief Organization agrees that they're going to take in that family, then they are placed in one of 20 of our locations around the United States. And they're assured by that local office that they will have help when they arrive. How are, how are they helped? Well, for us, this is a very unique thing and maybe a little bit different than, let's say, with World, World Vision. I met with someone who was in this area from World Vision, and they said, what, what's the difference of the two? I said, I always hear what people say the differences are. And he said, you guys are doggedly committed to the local church. What you do has to happen through the local church. And in fact, our mission statement is that, to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. So how do we help these refugees that are arriving? The majority of all the work that is actually done with refugees is done with volunteers from 200 plus churches here in the area. So from our one office in two locations, both in Aurora and in Wheaton, we have 200 churches and 1,100 volunteers who are picking people up at the airports with signs. 
who are helping set up apartments. Maybe they're interior designers and they want to help in that way. Or maybe they're just helping people practice their English, but they're volunteering their time. And that's the majority of the help that is going on with the refugees we receive. So what's the goal? Well, the goal for us is really that they would be sustained and that they would have healthy integration into our communities. And we really try to do that in three areas of service. Uh, resettlement, actually getting them here, and that's where we work with the government to do that. The second is education, so ESL and job classes and citizenship classes. And the third is the area of legal services. And really, we have volunteer opportunities in all of those. So our booths out in the garden area, if you'd like to just look at ways that you might be involved. So let me say this, these are all very practical reasons why and how we do refugee resettlement. But the much bigger question is why we don't. Um, last year, uh, Lifeway Research did a survey of 1,000 Protestant ministers, and this was released, and they said that the biggest reason that people are not involved is fear. True for over half of the churches represented by those pastors. So the biggest hurdle that we face is overcoming people's fears. You know, this is uh, an interesting subject if you think about it in light of what's happened in Charlottesville, what went on in Barcelona this week, and even what happened in, in Boston yesterday. Let me just say I have had people praying all across the country for what I would say to you here today because I don't want to be a political person in front of you. I want to be a servant of God talking about things that matter to the kingdom. Right now, though, our country seems to be caught up in fear. And fear can lead us either to, to hate people or even to avoid those who might do us harm. But our Bible story tells us a very interesting story that parallels this, if you think about it. You might think about this story on a surface level and say, well, it's all about Saul's conversion and about his calling to Christianity and really is calling to bring Christianity to the rest of the world. But I want to point out something else to you, and that is just below the surface, we see fear here. We see fear acting out, and we see re uh, reactions to fear dominating the lives of the people in our Bible story today. What's the solution? How do we overcome our fears? Well, today in the scripture, we see how two people did. Their story is so important that Dr. Luke, and as the writer of the book of Acts, retells this story three times in chapters 9, chapters 22, chapter 26. And then Paul himself, as he was renamed, uh, references his story and this story three times in his letters to the churches and his pastoral letters, both in, both in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, and in 1 Timothy. So let me get to the story. Long introduction. <laughs> I'll, I'll be brief. I'll work quick. Our story features really two lives that are driven by fear. The two people that are referenced here are Saul and Ananias. Saul was a Jewish zealot from, from Tarsus, what is Turkey today, which is the second largest place where refugees are settled today. He was a man of very strong pedigree, bright young man, the scripture tells us. He was privileged to be born a Roman citizen. He was fluent. He was not just bilingual. He was trilingual in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. He was raised in the epicenter of Judaism in Jerusalem. He was discipled by the most respected Pharisee of the time, Gamiel, and he was an expert in the Jewish law. 
On the opposite side of that, you have Ananias, who was a very quiet Jew from Damascus, what would be Syria today, whom we know very little about except what the scriptures tell us, just four things here, that his experience must have been a very defining moment because his name isn't mentioned anywhere else in scripture. Um, it says that he was a follower of the way, so he had become a Jew who had begun to follow Christ, but his faith had become very comfortable to him, devoid of any kind of risk, yet he knew there was some kind of calling that might be costly to him in his personal life, the scripture tells us. So let me just take just a moment and back from the story and ask this question of you, what causes fear within us? What causes it? Fear is generally caused by a threat to our life or maybe a threat to our own way of life. And fear leads to either fight or to flight. Today, uh, we also call that hyperarousal or acute stress response. We have good medical terms for these things these days. And that response is a perceived harmful event, threat or event to our own survival. Uh, the guy who kind of coined this phrase, Walter Bradford Cannon, theorized that we have this um, threat and that gives a discharge in our system, our sympathetic nervous system, that causes us either to fight or to flee. But back to our Bible story. What causes the fears that you see here of Saul and Ananias? Saul's fears seem to be around a threat to his own religion. Maybe one of these fears you might identify with. Saul's threat was a fear to his own religion. It was caused by a great passion for his faith, but that passion for his faith also caused a misunderstanding of other faiths. His separation from them led to a hatred for them and what they were doing in his country. He began breathing threats of deportation to them. He received orders to actively prosecute them. He showed zeal to combat their cause, and that led to an obsession that expanded his hunt to ever-widening circles, even beyond Jerusalem to other countries. What about Ananias' fears? His fear was the threat of his own life. He perceived a lack of good vetting that allowed someone with a proven record of harm to enter his country. His faith produced a sensible obedience, a reasonable faith, a comfortable lifestyle with, a, with any avoidance of, of harm, and a distrust of others who might cause him harm or perceive to cause him harm in any way. And all this results in him questioning God for asking him to do something that was outside of his comfort zone. Both fears, both the fears of Ananias and the fears of Saul, are deadly to a living faith. Both were heading down destructive paths in their lives until Jesus intervenes to change the course of their actions. So what changes the path that they're on? Very clearly here, both had a powerful encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul's encounter with Jesus leads to some radical interruption of Saul's plans. Jesus confronts his actions, the persecuting that he was doing as in a personal affront to him. He blinds him and causes him not to continue the direction that he had been going. Saul then is converted. He becomes a follower of the way too. And Saul becomes a chosen instrument of God to carry Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. 
What about the encounter for Ananias? His encounter in Jesus does this for him. It gives him a brand new understanding of God's broader purposes, that there's something bigger than what we see around us, and that God had bigger purposes in this situation. It also caused him to trust where God was leading him to go and to do what God was calling him to do. And it led him to obey by stepping in to help a very vulnerable person, yet an enemy, even when he knew there were personal risks involved. You see, both lives are transformed by their encounter with Jesus. What did they do to deserve such an encounter with him? Nothing. You see, Jesus pursued them out of his love for them. What others saw as harm, he saw as a good thing in their lives. So he pursued them out of his love for them. He showed them he had purposes beyond what they could see for their lives. And his calling was to call them to do what he wanted them to do. So what did they do? <laughs> they did a very simple thing, something I would call you to do today. Submit your lives to what God wants you to do. And they did that, no holds barred. They were willing to do whatever he wanted them to do. Note this, though, that only in Christ can two men who have been bitter enemies come together, not just as friends, but as brothers. What are the implications for each? Well, if you look at Saul and his situation, he quits his personal crusade of his religion to become an advocate for Christ. He engages the Christian community. He suffers from his former faith community because of what he believes now. But he's protected by his former enemies to help him escape in a basket leaving Damascus. But the trouble isn't over. Back in Jerusalem, he's not received by the Christian community because of their fears of him. But ultimately, if you think about this, because of the obedience of a Syrian man who welcomed strangers, he became the sent one and apostle to others. And we are all the beneficiaries today. Think about Ananias' implications, though. He quits trying to live a safe, quiet life of faith for himself. He reaches out with helping hands to care for this well-known enemy of the faith. He not just forgives his brother or his enemy, but he calls him his brother, Brother Saul. Earlier group, I said that was, to me, reminding me of my Baptist roots. Uh, brother Saul, he seemed to have shifted from an enemy to a brother for him. And he heals him and he helps him find faith and fullness in the Holy Spirit. He, with Barnabas, um, welcomes Saul to this larger community of faith that we know today as Christianity. Think about this. Both men's profound actions could be summed up by this simple quote from a Scottish author, minister, and professor whose name is William Barclay. He said this. A Christian is a person who has ceased to do what he wants to do, and he's begun to do what Christ wants him to do. Pretty straightforward statement. To cease to do what we want to do and do what Christ wants us to do. What are the broader implications for the church? We didn't read on through. You're probably grateful we didn't go down to verse 31. You had been standing a lot longer if we'd gone through the whole chapter. Thank you for your reading a part of that chapter. In verse 31, it says, this is what happened because of the transformation and the move from fear to faith for these men. It says that the church found peace throughout the region, that the church was built up, that the church began walking in the fear of the Lord, that the church enjoyed encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and that the church was increasing in numbers. 
I know we really don't want that in our church, but these were things that happened in that church. Um, good growth, increased faith, all of those things. So let me take this back to you and I uh, from this, this story of Saul and Ananias. What fears drive your relationship to refugees? Maybe you have fear of the vetting process, even though they have no choice where they go. As you've heard, the UN vetting process and timeline is lengthy. The US process and timeline is lengthy. The waiting list could be up to 17 years and one-tenth of one percent of them ever make it to this country. Maybe your fear is the fear of safety about harm to you or harm to your family. Even though over three million people have been welcomed to this country since 1980 and none have been found to commit any acts of terrorism against our country. Odds of it happening to you are pretty remote. You're four times more likely to be killed by a lightning bolt than you are by a terrorist attack. Over the last five years, that would mean you have a one in 20 million um, percent chance of this happening to you. More likely to happen to you are these things. One in 19,000 of you could be killed in an auto accident. Uh, one in 800,000 of you could be killed in your own bathtub. Dying from a fire, one of you in 99,000 could be killed from a fire. But we're talking about something that's less than one in five and a half million people. Maybe your fear is a fear of freedom of your religion and the impact of other religions on this. You've already heard that the majority of the people we receive are Christian, and the immigrant church is actually the fastest growing segment of the church in America. It's also the fastest growing segment of the church in DuPage County, if you didn't know that. The president of Asbury Seminary, Tim Tennant, said this, immigration may, be just, may just be the greatest hope for revival for Christianity in America. A final fear, fear maybe of economic drain to our country from this work. Even though if you read most economists on this, they agree that refugees are really a net gain to our country. Did you know that even a refugee's flight to this country is not free? They must pay back that loan once they arrive here for the flight that they flew. And then once they arrive, they're given a lifetime grant. And that lifetime grant is $972 one time. For a family of four, that'll give them about three months of livelihood here in DuPage County. So it becomes incumbent on us to make sure they have jobs, and 95% of them do within 58 days of landing on a plane here in the United States. If you'd like to learn more about even the entrepreneurial efforts, we have a church in Naperville High Point that's actually hosting for us a spotlight on the entrepreneurialism of refugees and immigrants. Uh, it's happening the 7th of September, so what, next, next couple of weeks. We have information at the booth about that. But, but let, me, let me boil it down to this. But even if we could give you a ready defense for the top fears that you have, we cannot replace for you a powerful encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a powerful encounter with him reading Acts chapter 17 and 18 as World Relief approached me about this role. I'd been a missionary working among 50 different language groups and I saw how God was bringing the nations here and what he was doing with them. And I saw this verse in verse 26 of Acts chapter 17. It says, from one nation, God made every nation of men, and he appointed the times and the places that they live 
so that they would seek him and find him, though he's not very far from any one of us. Here's Paul in an urban area of Athens saying who his God is to these people who don't know anything about who his God is. And one of the core things that he tells them is that God moves people around. And when he moves them around, he moves them around for what purpose? So they'll know him. And that's been my experience is seeing, even beginning with world relief, the nations come here, come to Christ, become part of churches, start churches. Uh, I think we were, we've been a part of 12 church starts in the past couple years now with these populations that are coming from around the world. So let me ask you this. Are you listening for Jesus' voice today? Or must he somehow redirect you like he did Saul? As we close, what are the implications for you? What fears do you know that you need to let go of today? Second, how have you encountered Jesus today? Maybe today from the scriptures in a new way. Third, what is God calling you to do next? I think he's specific in his instructions. And number four, what might be the profound implications of your actions on this church if you did? I know how God changed my life. I know how he's changing my church. I know how he could change your church through this. It can be a blessing, and I believe God is at work among us if we see the bigger purposes of what he's doing in these things. Let me pray with you all. Father, thank you for this great group here. Thank you for their openness in a very challenging subject to discuss. Thank you for the people that I know are praying around, uh, around the country and maybe some around the globe for me right now with what has been shared. I pray that the power of the scriptures would be very true here. Use the facts, but Father, may your word be the strong message that comes through. Thank you that you've called us to welcome strangers and you called governments to secure borders, but help us to be people who welcome and work with the people that God sends our way because you have greater purposes for them. They are chosen instruments in your hands. Lord, I ask you would bless in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. And the booth is out there if you'd like to ask.